Can you guys can hear me okay? Actually, could you guys just talk for an- five seconds? Hi, my name is Tom. Talking, talking, I am the one talking. who is talking right now. Did you know that in... I actually just meant between yourselves while I did something. No. And now you're just talking. Yeah. <laughs> talking is a thing that was invented in the year 2000. And it was invented by um, Amanda Talking. Oh, we won't really who is the head of the Illuminati? <laughs> who is the head of the Illuminati? Oh my god. Great, great. Yes, and... Welcome to Let's Learn Everything, the show where we learn about anything and everything interesting. As per usual, we will be doing a main topic, diving into a question, and then covering a little miscellaneous topic. My name's Caroline, and this episode's main topic is going to be about if we should be protecting the Western honeybee. Destroy the bees! Destroy the bees! You love bees? No, fuck them. What? Is that the stance we're taking? Is that this podcast's stance <laughs> now? Is fuck bees. Actually destroy the bees? <laughs> if the answer to that is yes, I don't want to hear it, Caroline. I think you should just stop now and not do this topic. I, it, we'll, we'll talk about it. It'll be okay. My name's Tom, and today's question... <laughs> My name's Tom, and today's question is, why do words, 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 lose meaning when you repeat them? <gasps> Ooh, oh. I thought you were making a Bobo, a Bo Burnham joke then, and I got really excited. <laughs> um, but actually, That's I like this more. Good, that, what a fun question. That's so interesting. I'm so excited. You know what? That's, it's one of those things you think about all the time and you never... Actually, you never actually like follow well, through on finding exactly. out. <laughs> and what we're gonna what we're gonna see is it, it's kind of tricky to nail down, but we'll we'll get into it. I'm excited. I'm Ella, and today's miscellaneous topic is speed running video games. Maybe we can maybe we can speed run our way to get to the miscellaneous topic. <laughs> I think actually, if you if you hold your podcast player and you turn it left and then press back five times you can actually activate a glitch to get to the miscellaneous topic ahead of time <laughs> i'll let you have it it was good hi guys ella here so i've recently started working at the center for gene therapy and regenerative medicine at king's college london and i really want to start live streaming people's experiments there over on tiktok so if you'd be interested in getting a peek at real laboratory science follow cgtrm on tiktok that's cgtrm thanks guys back to the show shall we chat about some bees yeah bees bees we love bees right you two have both made videos about bees i've made videos about bees bees are good right we've done like multiple questions and topics i feel like that bees have come up like a handful of times yeah so do we know how many species of bee there are globally Oh boy. Is that a tough question? It's going to be like yeah. a shit ton. <laughs> it's a shit ton, yeah. And that's the, that's a scientific term. Yes, that is. That's completely accurate. <laughs> that's a metric term, yeah. 
<laughs> are most of them solitary bees? Like, oh, they are. Yes, you you're stealing my I, content already. I, I love I'm it. I'm learning a lot. I it's funny because I, I I do know. I feel like my domain of bee knowledge comes from the strange esoteric things that they do, yeah. and not the general knowledge about like mm-hmm. how they. That's are. true. Most of mine. So I, I did not know that comes from the same area, but I just happened. yeah. I only know about solitary bees because people make little homes for them. Like, this is where a solitary yes. bee can rest. Mm-hmm. So would you two, would it be safe to say that you don't know a whole lot about solitary bees? Almost nothing. There are, we don't know the, like, the exact number of bee species that there are, obviously. Can I guess? My, I know with insects, it's always, like, nuts. My, yeah. like, real guess would be just, like, ju- Thousands. like, in the many hundreds just in the many hundreds? Thousands. I'm going oh, thousands. Am I, am I the fool? Is it in the thousands? It's so. There are at least 25,000 bee species. <laughs> some sources say 16,000. Some sources say uh, 30,000. I believe we know that there are about 25,000 species of bee. There are actually 200,000 species of pollinators worldwide. So there are a lot of like insects doing pollinating but there are twenty five thousand species of bee i am such a fool do you know roughly how many of those are solitary bees most like a percentage 98 percent it's not quite so bees that that don't that don't have a hive is that like a good way to define that Uh, so it is bees that aren't in like a colony of some sort they don't spend all of the time like under a queen or anything yeah yeah okay okay dancing although maybe no that's not true maybe maybe solitary bees dance on their own time but they don't dance in parties i'll be honest everything i like about bees is the hive stuff so these yeah. bees they sound kind of shit <laughs> around 90 percent of bee species are solitary bees absolutely no idea yeah it's a lot of the bee species um and obviously we talk about them a lot less. They're a lot less charismatic because everybody loves talking about like bees in their hives, doing little yeah. dances, um, yeah. all of this sort of stuff. It's stuff that we learn about like really, really young at school. Um, and I think one species that we learn about a lot is the honeybee. Yes. Also known as Apis mellifera. That's its scientific name. Can I just tell you guys the the scientific name for uh, bumblebee? Go on, yeah. Bombus terrestris. I, it's so cute, isn't it? <laughs> That's so, oh, so it's a different. It's a different genus. I think there are around four thousand different genus of, of bees. That's so bonkers. That's crazy. Yeah. The honeybee obviously has a native range of Europe, parts of Western Asia, and Africa. However, it's found pretty much globally at this point. We have a lot of managed colonies in North and South America, Central and Western Asia, and Australia as well. This is the honeybee, well. right? Yeah, this is the honeybee. Okay. Um, and we think that this spread of the honeybee is attributed to deliberate introductions from mostly European colonizers who mm-hmm. would transport the species around the world in order to access honey. Introductions occurred in North America in 1622 and in the 1800s in Australia. So it's relatively recent. And did you know that if there's if you need a, a new queen for your hive, they'll just send them in a little box. They'll like just get they'll just put the queen in a little like match kind of looks like a matchstick box and then they'll just 
post put her in the post. It's so weird, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I think bees are like one of the only live animals that you can put in the post in the UK. Oh my god, I'm gonna send people bees. <laughs> <laughs> Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it's one of the few live animals that you can. Because <laughs> uh. yeah, you can literally just like order a hive and they'll post it to over. you. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, these bees are kept for their ecosystem services, which are these services that um, ecosystems contribute and they provide for the well-being of humans. It's a very human-centric thing. Um, so honey is a big one. Also, mm-hmm. pollination is mm-hmm. a really, mm-hmm. really big one for these bees. The honey market is worth around £5.92 billion pounds per year. Wow. Boy, but howdy. the pollination value of the honeybee is way higher at around yeah. 120 to 140 Ooh. billion pounds. Ooh. Honeybees are super important. Um, obviously, 87, around 87% of flowering plants are pollinated by animals. 124 of our main crops uh, produced for human consumption, consumption wow. are really reliant on pollinators. And the honeybee is thought to be one of the single most important pollinating species. So even even if they made no honey, it, they would be yeah. tremendously valuable. They would still be incredibly valuable. And we're going to talk about some of the other benefits of having honeybees. But just from like a monetary perspective, they are really, really important. Is this like pollination Wild. of like crops and stuff? Or what? Yeah, okay. yeah, exactly. Yeah, because so many of our crops rely on like are really really dependent on honeybees for pollination especially crops that don't get rotated in fields so Mm, monocropping mm. i think that's called they really really rely on honeybees as well we'll get into that in a second um so interesting on top of that the number of honeybee hives has increased by at least uh 45 percent since the 1960s some sources say like 61 percent as of 2007, there were 7.2 million honeybee colonies globally. So we have a lot of honeybees in the in the planet, basically. Uh, it's very interesting to think about because, because right when you first mentioned like bringing them across to America, I'm like, you know, that kind of like fits my perspective as like a honeybee as like an old timey thing almost. But yeah. like as society has grown the honeybees have also which is very interesting yeah, like it, it becomes like a, a rooted part of agriculture which is very interesting yeah. to me yeah and it's not just agriculturally like hobbyists who are really yeah, into like yeah. keeping bees also has increased a lot over the last couple of decades and that's just gonna keep going up as well wild this is a little bit about why the honeybee is so good for the things that it does so the species is a super generalist pollinator or a very, very generalist pollinator, meaning that they can pollinate an incredibly wide range of plants. Um, this also means that they can adapt really well to new environments, even though they've been domesticated, which usually means that they are less well adapted or less easy to adapt to new environments yeah. because mm-hmm, they can mm-hmm. pollinate anything and they can use anything to make honey. They can just sort of go wherever so that means that they have ended up everywhere. <laughs> God, bees are amazing. Honeybees are absolutely, they're really, really cool. And I, I do want to clarify, like, this isn't going to be me just shitting on honeybees the entire time. All of that being said, even though I said earlier that the number of managed honeybees um, is going up, 
in some areas, the number of managed honeybees is decreasing. As well as, as I mentioned earlier, native honeybees are also a thing across a lot of Europe. Um, And especially in places like the UK, the number of honeybees is actually going down as well. And because of these local declines, honeybee conservation and honeybee like management has got a lot of attention. I feel like we've all heard Save the Bees, right? We all yeah. have heard Save the Bees. And when we talk about Save the Bees, a lot of it is very heavily targeted towards the honeybee. It's not the 25,000 species it's, of bees. No, it's not all of the other bees. Say, an example, America. Uh, This is from 2016. The Agricultural Research Service has five labs based across America, four Mm -hmm. of which are dedicated specifically to the honeybee, rather than the 4,000 other species of native bee in America. Wow. A lot of money is going towards this. Yeah, that's crazy. They're not even native. Mm -hmm. It's not even native to America, um, which is just absolutely insane. This isn't just limited to, like, the Obama administration. Uh, In 2020, the Conservation Research Programme planned to manage land with the goal of supporting pollinators, and this included creating a seed mix. Uh, So, like, a, a packet of seeds that you could go and plant and it was designed for pollinator enriched planting i say in quotation marks because this planting mix focused solely on the needs of the honeybee rather than Mm. any other bee species Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so that's just like a little taste of what the issue is it's not necessarily that we are conserving the honeybee uh, some studies say that the honeybee conservation is essential in some areas, but is it a bad thing to focus these conservation methods so heavily yeah. on the honeybee rather than other native species? That's very. I had never even considered. Uh, yeah. I mean, this, when you hear when you hear "save the bees," it, it's like a pretty straightforward yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Some people say "save the bees." What they mean is save the financial bee profit, you know, yeah. that clearly. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> they do not mean save the other 200,000 pollinator species that are out there or the 25,000 other bee species. It's save the things that are going to make sure that we can huh. survive afterwards. Mm. And 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 because bees are such a, the honeybees are such a like robust, easy pollinator, yeah. they are sort of like a... Okay, okay, I'm picking this up now. We're we're getting the vibes of it. Um, So, first off, we'll start off nice. We'll talk about the benefits (laughs) of using the honeybee. Obviously, as I mentioned earlier, they're super generalist, um, Mm -hmm. meaning it interacts and pollinates many, many groups, possibly reducing pollination deficiency in native plants um, and making sure that pollen isn't going to waste in those plants. Plants spend a lot of energy making this pollen to go and pollinate and go and, like, reproduce. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the honeybee makes sure that that doesn't go to waste. Mm. Um, and obviously it's essential for farming and things like that. Um, we also know that the honeybee is an effective pollinator, and in some cases it's thought to possibly be a more effective pollinator than native species that's a very very contested statement though and i will move on to why in a minute um but it's just an interesting point that a lot of studies do suggest that the honeybee is more efficient than native species 
The species' wide distribution also contributes to the bee's effectiveness as a pollinator. So there's a lot of benefits to having honeybees around. There's also something called apitourism, which is tourism around beekeeping, basically. <laughs> um, that includes things like increased education to the public on bees and their importance to the community, provides a lot of jobs, especially when these sorts of sites are run on already established bee farms. Bee farms mm -hmm. are a thing. So whilst there is some potential for native species to fulfil some of these services, the honeybee, even though it's non-native, it's essentially already there to do all of these things. Furthermore, the possible removal of the species could lead to a reduction in seed production by 14%, which is quite a lot considering how much seed and grain we rely on. There's also an argument to be made that the honeybee has been found in its non-native range for so long now, and it provides such mm. an important service that it mm. shouldn't be presented as invasive or non-native. Uh, and actually, a lot of the time in literature, it's not considered non-native or invasive at really? all. Really? Yeah. Well, I guess, it, can you consider wow. something invasive when you deliberately put it there? I mean, so a lot of uh, invasive species are things that we've put there. For example, magnolia is another plant that we've put there for decorative purposes and it's now yeah. like a forest killer, yeah. Because that, that it's expanded beyond our control. Have honeybees expanded beyond human control? Uh, some would argue yes, and some would obviously argue because populations are decreasing in some areas, no. So it's a mixture of both right if okay. that makes sense yeah i find that that really interesting because like when you're listing all these things i'm like i'm like honeybees seem to like check like literally every box yeah absolutely but, but, but the thing is that most of those boxes are like human box like yeah. no, who who cares no no one in nature cares about tourism yeah. you know like like <laughs> the bees aren't like oh great all this tourism is really helping with our our honey that's that's a very yeah human goal. Can you guys think of any reason why the honeybee might be bad? Ugly, mean, uh, very <laughs> cruel to other bees. I haven't They're dug bullies. through their tweets, but I'm sure probably in the early 2000s they said Race, something yeah, like racist bad about roaches against other bees. or something. Yeah, um, against, yeah. Really, all of the no. Okay, let me have an actual think. Um... <laughs> thank, thank you for letting us get that out out of our system. Or do they take? I assume they just take resources from like other local oh. pollinators. That's a big one. So we'll start there. Like it's one that comes to mind immediately. Mm. And obviously, as honeybee colony densities increase, the activity of wild pollinators also decreases. So the presence of these honeybees does actively impact wild bee populations. When you say, um, sorry, can I just ask, when you say pollinators, do you just mean bees or do you mean other? Uh, so in that case, it is just bees. I don't know if it impacts all wild pollinators. That would be have to be. What are other wild pollinators? Um, wasps. wasps are a really good wasps, one. Yeah. yeah. Oh. Of course. Um, a lot of beetles and Be things oh, like really? that. Beetles. Yeah, yeah. Do some like does a does a hummingbird count? I was gonna pose that question to you guys. I actually don't know. Um but I think it's mostly a lot of insect species that do do yeah. pollinating. I feel things, like hummingbirds yeah. can't do enough. You know? Possibly not. Not near yeah. yeah. Sorry, I'm looking at pictures of solitary bees. <laughs> 
<laughs> Looking to adopt one. Have you found any cute ones? Um, they're they're less cute than honeybees, uh, generally speaking. I would argue the bumblebee is possibly the cutest. Bumblebee bee. is hands down the cutest bee. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I found a real. Oh, I found a babe. Okay, right. Let me send you this. Oh. <gasps> oh, he oh. is so sweet. Oh, yeah, right. Oh. We'll put this in the Discord. If anyone wants oh, to look yeah. at it. So, on top of that, as flower populations increase, obviously all bee species will increase in their abundance mm-hmm. as well. But the honeybee increases at a faster rate than other mm-hmm. wild bee species. Mm-hmm. Possibly okay. because they are a more dominant bee. On top of that, I obviously previously made the argument that Apis mellifera or the honeybee um, is a more efficient pollinator uh, and allows pollen resources to not go to waste however this claim doesn't seem to be necessarily true with Mm. some studies suggesting that much more specialized bee species will collect 97 to 99 percent of resources available when the honeybee isn't there okay so even claims, even really big claims like that don't seem to be true all of the time. So a really, really good example of the honeybee out-competing native bees is with the yellow-faced bee. Ing and Mogren found that the honeybee outcompeted the endangered yellow-faced bee. Um, and actually the honeybee was using chemical deterrents <laughs> to keep the bee Whoa. away. But this is particularly... Like their own? Yeah. The honeybee was using its own chemical deterrence to keep the other bee away. The interesting thing about that, though, is that the honeybee is not territorial. So it wasn't deliberately deterring these native bees. It just happened to be a chemical in the bee that kept the native yellow-faced bees away. So they weren't doing it on purpose. That's... It's really interesting because at... As we dig down into each of these things, I'm realizing that it's like, of course, it's more complicated than just like they collect more pollen. Like it's it's like pollination is such a I mean, the, I think the reason why we do that, we, we relegate that to bees is because it is such a complicated thing that we can't like yeah. go around ourselves and doing it. Um, so, I mean, of course, that there there are there would be these like complicated mechanisms when there are so many insects all trying to do this complex dance with all these flowers Mm -hmm. it's not as easy as just like well the honeybees do it faster necessarily yeah the next thing i want to talk about is also a really really huge thing and that's virus and pathogen spillover so when the honeybee has a virus and it accidentally infects another species of bee Uh, it'll knock out that species much quicker than the honeybee because there's loads of honeybees exactly yeah so several viruses have been shown to have spillover um including with bumblebees no which is really sad kill the honeybee (laughs) (laughs) um so there is one virus called deformed wing virus which is exactly how it sounds as well as colony collapse disorder which is a disorder that we don't entirely know what causes it, but we know when honeybees have it, a lot of other species also have this as well. So this isn't just for um, solitary bees, but other colony bees are also impacted by this as well. And and this is exactly, like I said before, the the kind of problem you get with 
having relying on a single species yeah. for Absolutely, your, your whole yeah. system. Wow. So there was one study that found that the honeybee and especially honeybee hives are often the source of a range of pathogens, including viruses, fungi, protists, um, etc. for solitary bees as well as colonies. Aww. I just want to say that your last main topic was also about many species of, an- of a single animal getting infected and dying. So this seems to be a trend and I'm not There's liking it. There's a theme it. here, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> Trying to keep it really light-hearted, you know? <laughs> so light-hearted. Really chirpy. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier, there are managed honeybee populations and wild honeybee populations. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm, found mm-hmm. that those viruses from those managed populations can also impact native populations as well Mm. because of course Mm. they can Mm. so that's especially a problem in places like the uk and parts of europe where they have a bit of crossover between the two can be really really detrimental to wild honeybee species which we're trying to protect in the first place there are a few other smaller things um a really interesting one that i found was insecticide research which can often focus on honeybees, but focus less on wild and native bee species. Mm -hmm. Because obviously when we're looking at crop uh, insecticides, we want to be making sure that we can definitely have honeybees on that crop. And often these wild native species are getting a lot less attention. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, one paper found that um, even though certain insecticides didn't impact honeybees, it could reduce wild bee density, solitary bee nesting, and bumblebee colony growth and reproduction as God. well. God, very wide-reaching implications, isn't there? Just for, like, yeah. one thing. The other interesting thing that I found was that honeybees can actually aid the introduction of other invasive plant species. This one's a little bit complicated. Uh, is it just because they are such over... They're such good pollinators uh, that sometimes they... That's exactly uh. it. So for native species that are much more specific, if an invasive species of plant comes in, it wouldn't get pollinated because how specific, how, because of how specific those bees are. But because honeybees are super generalist, it allows these invasive plant species to get pollinated and to reproduce. That's interesting. It's super interesting. Those are the negative impacts that honeybees can have. After those two bits, what are you guys thinking about if we should be protecting the honeybees so much? All of them. (laughs) Doing a complete 180 from the intro. (laughs) Wow, Ella. I didn't think we would go quite so far. No, I I love it. They obviously, you know, have some use. And, you know, as anthropocentric as as it is they are useful to us and so we probably do need to you know cro- the the truth is we need to make a lot of crops at this point because we yeah. Use, yeah. use a lot of food yeah. so absolutely yeah yeah so obviously i've talked about the negative impacts that honeybees can have but can wild native bees step up to the plate can they fulfill <laughs> all of the things that we need them to do so as i mentioned earlier if you remove honeybees, it's thought that seed production would re- would decrease by 14%. However, mm-hmm. honeybees account for up to 92% of observed floral visits. So you'd actually expect for that number, that 14%, to be a lot higher than it is. You'd expect that that seed production would decrease oh. so would decrease a yeah, lot. To- yeah, yeah, yeah. So they do. So the the 92% do 14% of the work. 
Essentially, yeah. That's not that great. What we think is happening is because specialised bees, so bees that specialised in pollinating certain plants, are going to be spending a lot more time around those specific plants and are therefore going to be a lot better at pollinating them. Uh. Whereas honeybees are going to be really unreliable for pollinating certain plant species. Um, they don't need to keep going back to those plants and they can spend a lot less time oh, around those plants so as well. That's so interesting. I... There is a, the, a whole economy to yeah. uh, bee plants economy. and bees that I was the bee <laughs> the, the bee economy. That was such a tom pun. I know. And I, I, loved I, it. I know. I'm seething. I'm so mad. I didn't come up with it. Um, no, but that's it. It's really like literally you have these thing, issues of like supply and demand and specialization yeah. and like flooding the market and. Mm-hmm. A much more explicit benefit could be with strawberries. Um, some studies have shown that the weight of the fruit itself, that final fruit that you get and buy, is actually higher when the plant was initially um, pollinated by wild native bees That's rather than the So there are a lot of like really, really clear benefits of using the native honeybee. You know what, here. I'm actually kind of... I'm hearing what you're saying after all of this, Caroline, and I think what you're saying is... <laughs> No immigrants. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, immigrant immigrant honeybees are taking our native bee jobs. Now, now, but consider Ella. I feel like this is more an example of bee imperialism. Yeah, and consider that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. There's a little. There's a tiny little bit more, which is. Um, the conservation of native bees often requires increasing and improving floral diversity. Because so many of them are super, super specialised, we need to make sure that those plants are definitely available to them. That can, in turn, increase the ecosystem services of the area by making it super pretty, by making it more attractive to tourism, Mm -hmm. which is another one that I mentioned earlier. Um... So that's another really big one, another box checked by the native honeybee. I don't really care about the tourism angle of this, to be honest. It no, seems re- yeah, that, that's, that's very fair. That's a bit too on the human side of things. Would like, you, that does nothing that's to it. Ella, would you not want to see a little cute bee, though? Let's go right to the other end um, and talk about climate change instead, then. Conserving native bees might be essential in the wake of climate change, with pollination services of the honeybee thought to decrease uh, as our climate changes, whilst the same services are thought to increase with wild honey uh, with wild, wild bees. Yeah. Do yeah. you know why? No, but I can absolutely link the paper that goes through that. It will be in the show notes. It will be in the show notes. Um, but what it's thought is that wild bees essentially could act as a buffer for the negative impact that climate change could have on the honeybee. Mm, mm. So that kind of leads me to my final point, which is possibly the two groups working together a lot more. Are you saying it's not just a fixed binary choice, Caroline? Are you, like are, one what? or the other. You can't have both. 
a lot of groups are trying to uh, advocate for a bit of both, basically, for increased management of the honeybee. Because, again, yeah. it's everywhere. It's going to be impossible to get rid of it at this yeah. point from so yeah. many places. Yeah. And it provides a lot of ecosystem services, a lot of pollination services, a lot of um, like providing food and things like that. Like they are legitimately a really, really important species, and we yeah. should be yeah. working to conserve them, but also maybe manage them in places where they are thriving. I think that we possibly should be focusing a lot more mm. on solitary bee species and native bee species, especially since we spend so much of our time talking about honeybees and possibly not even realizing that it's just honeybees that we're talking yeah, about. I literally, did not even realize. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And like, especially with the climate crisis, literally at our doorstep, having both of them work together so that we can still have food in the future is a really, really good thing. I like that. Yeah. (laughs) There are some papers which suggest putting a honeybee colony, like strategically placing them so that honeybees can get as much area as possible to pollinate everywhere. I think that's a bad idea. I think we shouldn't be doing that. Um, I definitely think that we should be focusing a lot more on wild bee species and solitary bee species. And I'm hoping that talking about it here will do that a little bit for some people. Maybe if you're sat at home thinking about what you could do to save the bees in your local area, find out what native bees you guys have got and what plants can be good for them. That's my little spiel at the end. Thanks, guys. That is so, 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 so interesting. It is. It's super interesting. And I actually wrote a 3,000-word paper on this for my degree. Um, So I was going to check with you guys, but I might, for the show notes, pop this in a Google Doc and link to that because every single source is going to be there. Um, So yeah, if anybody wants to give that a little read. It's it's so interesting because I literally have replaced like my in my mental concept of just like save the bees has now been replaced with like this little model of thinking about this bee economics situation where it's like well there's a careful interaction between and 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 that's that's how it actually is right is is it is extremely complicated Mm. and but i think i think to your point there is a totally reasonable balance between the two because yeah. b- b- bees are totally useful you know like as much as we joke about how how anthropocentric reasons are stupid we 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 are humans and we do have yeah. to actually consider that um but at the same time it sounds like there is a surprisingly reasonable middle ground that can exist oh, yeah, in definitely. terms of just just understanding that there there are more bees than than just the one yeah than just the honeybee and I think it's also just important to add on to the end of it, like if you are still a huge honeybee lover and you want to help them as well, <laughs> um, a lot of the honeybees needs do cross over with native bee species, but it doesn't quite work no. back the opposite direction. Fuck em. So you're definitely <gasps> better to plant plants that help native bees because it will help honeybees at the same time. So save mm, the bees mm, can mm. still mean save a lot of species of bee it's just being more conscious about what choices you make in terms of planting in terms of putting those solitary bee boxes out that can be a really great way to get bees into your garden i'm already saving the bees like i bought my parents a solitary go. bee box and my mum sends oh. me pictures sometimes of where the little holes have been filled over because the bees have gone in and then sealed themselves oh, up oh that's so lovely <laughs> 
totally do stuff like that. I think it's a really interesting way to like get kids involved yeah. with it as well if you can show them where they are living. So yeah, totally do that. Yay! Yay! Save the bees, all of them. Save the bees, all of the bees, not just the ones that are talked about in the fucking bee movie. Oh my god, I actually referenced that. In my essay. <laughs> Is that a whole? That's a whole box of worms. We can't. We can't oh, open that. Oh yeah, I'll go down there at some point. <laughs> Today's question is, well, I, I'm actually really curious how y'all would describe this phenomena. Say wordy too many times, wordy no wordy anymore. I wouldn't say that it loses meaning to me. I would say that it stops. <gasps> oh, that's interesting. It stops sounding like, like I know the word, is, what the word is and the meaning of the word, but it stops sounding like a word at all. Yeah, it stops just being a word. Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're gonna we're gonna dig into that a little bit, but it is it is interesting because it it's it's a feeling that like once I said it, you were all like, oh, I know what it is. But mm-hmm. but when you try to put it into words, you start to to, to think about it a bit more and and start yeah. to question what what would be the right words to describe this even. So I want to start off saying uh, an extremely helpful source for this question comes from a summary of the literature by Sheila Black. Uh, from the journal Advances in Psychology Research. Tremendous overview of this history, of this question. Um, And the way that she describes it is like this. Children will often entertain themselves by repeating the same word repeatedly and will often report that the word sounds funny. (laughs) Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say often. I wasn't like phoning up my friends on the weekend to be like, hey, you want to go to the park and repeat words? (laughs) I mean, who am I kidding? I would would absolutely do that. A lot of papers point out how common and relatable this is, right? Like I, I like to think of it as being one of those phenomenon that's like a, you know, that thing where dot, dot, dot kind of phenomenon. So one of the earliest descriptions I could find of this in, in a journal was from 1919. And I, I thought the author's excitement really captures that, that feeling. Um, so the quote goes, Repeat aloud some word, the first that occurs to you, house, for instance, over and over again. Presently, the sound of the word becomes meaningless and blank. You are puzzled and a morsel frightened as you hear it. Frightened? <laughs> I'm only a morsel, just a mere morsel frightened. But to, to give it a really a clean, formal definition, the way one paper put it was like this. When a word is repeatedly produced or perceived... Many people experience a subjective and temporary loss of the meaning of that word. I just wanted to mention this really quickly because this blew me away. This is just a quick tangent about this is that there's a paper that came out last year that theorized that ancient Greek poems might have used this effect as a poetic device on purpose. So, for example, when a poem goes... Zeus was born first. Zeus of flashing lightning was last. Zeus is the head. Zeus the center. All things are made from Zeus. Zeus is the breath of all. Zeus the fate of all. Zeus is king. Zeus of flashing lightning is lord of all. There's a chance that they could have been using this this phenomenon purposefully and, and like and as, as an artistic device. Uh, there's a quote from the paper that goes, When Aristotle speaks of multiple anaphoras, he notes that repetition is not effective in writing and should be reserved for speech. Multiple repetition translates a name into the sound of weeping or literally elides a word into its echo. This effect encourages forms of wordplay that highlight the performance environment over the narrative world of the poem. Um, I just think that's interesting. And 
I just think it it speaks to the fact that this is a phenomenon that everyone sort of knows. And not only that, but it, it's a phenomenon that you can like really feel for yourself. Like you can do it now and just go, whoa, and and and, and yeah. have that experience yourself. Yeah. But at the same time, it is somehow unexplained, which is a combination you love to see in psychology. Yeah. Um but as as much as our science excitement alarms are going off, um, so should our warning alarms, because what makes it so alluring is exactly what can be its downfall when it comes to the work of actually proving it, right? The fact that it's so intuitive is is makes it really exciting, but it kind of makes it hard to work at experimentally. So mm-hmm. I'm actually really excited to talk about this, not just because it's interesting, but because having studied psych and cognitive science, it is basically a perfect example of the pitfalls and the beauty of a lot of psychology experiment design. So the real question today isn't just why does it happen, but how would you even test mm. in an experiment that that happens? Oh, wow. Yes. Let's teach the people how to do proper <laughs> experimental design. Woo! <laughs> We're going to dig into those experiments, and we're going to see if we can spot the pitfalls. Oh, interesting. So, oh, I love this. Nice. First, we're going to give this spooky phenomena a name. Uh, the paper to coin the phrase that scientists finally stick to and still use today uh, was written in 1962 by Leon Jakobowicz. And they did, a, they did a great service in giving it a single name because according to Leon, quote, many other names have been used for what appears to be essentially the same process. Inhibition, refractory phase and mental fatigue, lapse of meaning, work decrement, cortical inhibition, adaptation, extinction, satiation, reactive inhibition, stimulus satiation, reminiscence, verbal satiation, verbal transformation. And so the name that finally sticks <laughs> to, 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 to get rid of all these weird, weird words Say that happen is... Say the name, is... Tom! God damn it! I'm going insane! <laughs> I must know! <laughs> is semantic satiation. Oh, I've heard so, this. I've heard this term. Yeah. It's great alliteration. Um, meaning but... meaning uh, is full. Full of, it's say, meaningful. That's a, that's a, yeah. <laughs> that's a great way to put it. And, and it's interesting that you say that is because, you know, unlike calling it that funny feeling that makes me a morsel frightened, when you call it semantic satiation, it gives it, and implied reason, right? And 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 you can sort of decipher what they mean by that. And Ella, you sort of put it, but like, what does that describe to you? Like from that word? Imagine that there's like a little test tube in your head. And then every time the word is said, <laughs> the meaning of a bit of liquid is poured. In, it's a meaning test tube. And then that, and then it, it gets, <laughs> it gets to the top the, and that, and then it, you can't pour any more in. So every time you say the word, there's no nothing going into the meaning tube yeah. anymore. The meaning tube is full. <laughs> Does that? Yeah, the the it's semantically satiated. That's that's very interesting. And I think that's that's there's there's some other metaphors that we're going to that I think you'll like that that are a bit more scientifically minded than a mental test tube necessarily. <laughs> As Sheila Black describes this phenomenon, she puts it quote: "Semantic satiation can be viewed as the semantic analog to habituation." 
as repeated information becomes less available, more attentional resources can be diverted from stimuli with little information value and directed towards new potentially informative stimuli. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Could you do that again? Because my mind just like switched off in the middle of it. (laughs) No, totally, totally fine. So perceptual habituation is like when you more often notice when an air conditioner turns off or on but not when it's actually going yeah because when it's on and it's been on for a while you basically tune it out Mm -hmm. and so that's useful perceptually because it's like okay i can focus my perceptions on things that are more relevant things that are changing and so the idea is that a similar analog is happening for like the meaning of words but what makes that kind of spooky is that it's not your perception of something that's being tuned out it's like the concept and the meaning of it right it's like the semantics versus the sound or the sight of the word which is kind of it's spooky because it gets to like a higher order thought right it's not your perception it's like your thinking is it spooky if it's like your brain just being like this is now no longer useful to me you know i mean yeah yeah it, but it, it's it's interesting that you can tune a thought you can tune a thought out like you can in air conditioning it, it, yeah i know that's of, uh... so interesting like that idea yeah. and yet why why is it that when the my downstairs neighbor is snoring really loudly i can't tune <laughs> that out that's that will be a question for another time uh... <laughs> While this makes intuitive sense, like I think we all can, or like, okay, this makes sense. Yeah. The question is, how do you show that with an experiment? How do you show that you're actually losing meaning and not something else happening? Oh God, that's huh. a very good question. Well, I hate to tell you, that's no longer a rhetorical question. Now I'm asking y'all, how, oh, how would no. you try to I that? honestly, psychology experiments are so difficult, you know, they're, they're so yeah. like, so yeah. much room for yeah. subjectiveness. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're not going to like this first experiment. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> like, there's still so many unanswered questions about how the brain itself works that figuring yeah. out this thing almost <laughs> seems impossible to me. But it's so interesting because at the same time, it's like, it's a thing, right? But it's also I, I like describe it. a universal yeah. experience that everybody goes through and you can literally initiate it whenever you want to. And yet it's so <laughs> hard to, like, testing... I don't know, when somebody experiences deja vu, it's impossible. You yeah, don't know yeah. when it's going to happen. It's still subjective, the experience that you're having. Like, the way I'm yeah. feeling it mm-hmm, might mm-hmm, not be mm-hmm. the same way that you're feeling it, right? Yeah. Does it vary with age? Oh. Does it vary with sex or gender or any of those things? Does it vary between different races? Yeah. We're going to get into that because I think that is that's that is one of the beautiful things about psychology experiments is that once you have this springboard all these like questions come to mind Uh, right it's like Mm -hmm. can i test it based on this can i test it this this? but um before we get to to that we're gonna talk about some of the downfalls so this is where we get into our experiments uh that try to show why this is happening um and as we go through them it, it really starts to feel like a parable that you would find in like a thousand and one Arabian Nights or like the three little pigs. Like we're we're going to talk about three experiments and each is going to fall prey to a, a classic psychology experiment design pitfall. So uh, one of the earliest studies uh, into this comes from Bassett and Warren from 1919 and the paper is titled On the Lapse of Verbal Meaning with Repetition. All good so far. We understand that uh-huh. they're going after that funny feeling. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And the procedure goes, the following instruction was given. 
I'm going to give you a common word, and you are to repeat it aloud until it has lost its meaning. At the close of the experiment, you will give a general account of the experience. <laughs> That's not science. <laughs> Oh dear. I understand that psychology has to use qualitative data sometimes, yeah. but there's literally mm-hmm. no nothing there. There's no level yeah. of instruction. Yeah. <laughs> All you're gaining from that is, oh yeah, it happens. You go, yeah, it happened, and it felt weird. Great. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, yeah, I was I was going to ask y'all to spot the pitfall, but it's pretty the the the. So, yeah. I think we I figured mean, okay. this one out. Yeah. There there are some. Uh, to its defense, there are some more variations to it, but like testing, they they test different speeds of repetition with a metronome to see if if it changes the effect. But that's basically like the, the gist of it. The repeats, how many words it takes, is that like a quantitative measure they're using? Are they using any quantitative measures at all, or just how people yes, feel? Yes, yes, yes. Th- they that is one of the things they are able to to sort of get glean at is like how roughly how many it takes. Um, and at and at what rate? So doing it faster um, makes it happen sooner is like one of the yeah, quantitative things sense. they can find. But for the most part, like you all said, the pitfall here is flimsy data, right? Because the only data we have here is introspection. Like the data, it's literally we asked them. Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, Ella, in, in psychology, like, well, this is an easy thing to reach for because you're trying to get at thinking, right? So why not just ask? Um, and well, and the reason why is because it's prone to so many outside factors and it's often way too variable. Like what if someone is just particularly chatty and someone else isn't, uh, what in their responses is the research going to choose to ignore or choose to highlight? Right. Um, I found this particularly quaint to try to quantify the experiments. They measure the mentions of quote, familiar feels as distinguished uh, from definite familiar feels. What? <laughs> and if you're confused by what those could possibly mean, so am I. And that's because th- these are phrases that aren't like something that are defined and determined ahead of time. They're, 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 you get them from these descriptions. And so it's, it's like putting the cart before the horse. You're not defining what you're trying to get at ahead of time. It's, it's, it's a mess. Um, yeah. Yeah. Now, to tell this point, I will say I think sometimes introspection is useful, like especially during this time when folks are trying to figure it out. And and there are some psychological phenomena that you have to. The best way to get it is just to ask people. Sometimes it is useful. Okay, for things to be, you know, qualitative. That's but there, yeah. there just has to be some parameters to that. Yeah, one hundred percent. Yeah, and when it comes to semantic satiation, there are better ways to figure out what's happening. So in nineteen sixty. We get another experiment from Lambert and Jakobowitz, where instead of just asking participants, hey, hey, how'd you feel about that? (laughs) Wasn't that weird? Uh, They instead asked participants to rank the word that they repeated on a scale of something called semantic polarity. So they would rate a word as either good or bad, strong or weak, passive or active on a scale from negative three to positive three. So like the word sleep, uh, I'd, I'd put as very good. Uh, in the middle of strong and weak and very passive. Um, And what they found is that if they had people repeat a word over and over, sleep, 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 then they would often report these words as more neutral. So the implication is that like the word's meaning is losing its strength, right? Interesting. And 
on the one hand, it, it's it's pretty clever because you're you're moving in the right direction because you're getting like a number that you can measure, right? Yeah. It's yeah. like the semantic score, um, which is interesting. But this study suffered from a classic fatal pitfall, and it's it's one of the more invisible curses of psychology experiments. Um, it it probably deserves its own topic one day. And it's it's probably the scariest pitfall that we'll encounter today. Can you guess what it might be? Were the words they chose the implications that those were bad or good or something were? Well, so they they were able to 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 test the word basically like before and after, um, <laughs> or or independently. So so I think no, it's, no, it's a I... comparison of the same words. Oh uh, yeah. yeah, no, I just I just meant maybe they would just like use some racist words or something because it's the nineteen sixties. <laughs> I mean, that is sort of like an interesting thing to think about is the fact that, you know, you can't, what are neutral words? That's a, yeah. that's a, good, that's a good question, but it's, it's a much, much scarier pitfall. Scarier um, than racism. <laughs> is it something that they just didn't in, in one language? This is going to be a big clue, but are either of y'all familiar with Clever Hans? No. Okay, no. then we'll get to talk about it. On Caroline's point there, do we know if this happens in languages other than English? I've definitely, I've seen it happen. There was an experiment that I believe was done in Japanese, and there was an experiment that I, I ran across that was in, in French. I, so I don't know about it for all languages, but that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point. And, and it, again, belies the thing where it's like, I want to test this and I want to test this. Yeah, yeah, this. yeah. From my understanding, it seems to be... Um, across languages okay. yeah yeah but again that's another great thing you guys are are of course very experimentally minded so yeah. i'm not surprised <laughs> but the second pitfall is something known as demand characteristics or the observer expectancy effect do you know what that is is it basically when they're like where people possibly could be changing that answer each time because they think something is expected of them so they expect exactly. it to change so they are changing it yeah the story of clever hans i'm, I'm this is like a classic psychology story is there was a <laughs> there was a horse that its owner was convinced could do multiplication <laughs> um of course by by you would present it with a math problem and it would stomp its hoof the number of times and it was able to do it and what they found was that the horse wasn't doing multiplication. It was just waiting until its owner did like a little like, because it would like oh. count up. And so when it reached the number, the owner would like, and, and again, not consciously, just unconsciously be like, Ooh. and then the horse would notice that and be like, I stop. Oh, so, so, well, that is, first of all, that is clever. Good job, Hans. Yeah, Hans yeah. is clever. Hans learned something there. It's just, it just wasn't multiplication. <laughs> yeah. And that's studying for the test, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's so interesting. So so you're, what you're saying is in this experiment, the uh, the psychologist was in the room, and, and as the person went to... <laughs> yeah, like, that, they were ooh, like... Ooh, 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 like a huge smile. <laughs> or, or, or doing like the Charlie Brown like sad walk. Yeah, away when they, when they the same the like... same number, they were like, oh no, oh no, oh no, mm. <laughs> like a single tear rolls down. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it what's what's really scary is that as much as we joke about it being like an obvious thing, so often it can be unconscious. So to put it into words, the idea of the observer expectancy effect is that. 
anything from the phrasing of the question to the presence of an experimenter to even just like being in a lab setting can influence the results of the experiment. Yeah, so basically the phenomena is you can have participants that are trying to be, quote, good participants, yeah. either consciously or, mm-hmm. or subconsciously on their part also. And this is especially a common problem with these sorts of like scalar surveys, right? So a few years after this polarity experiment, <laughs> Yellen and Schultz do a variation of this and find that, <laughs> as Sheila Black put it, quote, when queried Participants indicated that they assumed that they were supposed to change their ratings as a function of repetition. Oh, no. Which is devastating, like yeah. heartbreaking. It's, it's, it's like the science equivalent of finding out that Santa was just your dad. Yeah. You're like, oh, that was nice. It's thoughtful, but that's not what I wanted. Well, <laughs> like, they should have oh. been... They should have been smarter about it and then, like, put what you, you know, been no. clear of in their instructions. Well, but to be fair, I'm, you know, I don't want to criticize too harshly. As you say, this was the 1960s and it's still a, new, yeah. a young yeah. science, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm just glad they weren't making them take LSD or something like that, which is what we were doing with a lot of experiments in the 60s. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, this is re- reasonably um, harmless. Um, one way to get around this is to think about measures that are harder to fake. Right. So we're going to get into some of those. But um, upon scrutiny, more studies are basically not able to replicate this original finding. So in 1963, we get another experiment um, up to bat for semantic satiation. Samuel Fillenbaum's like, all right, I got this. (laughs) Third time's the charm. And Sam's idea is he has a booklet um, on the first page. The participant would be asked to write down a word over and over and over. So like, chair 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 like like it's sort of like your bart in the opening of the simpsons you're just writing chair over and over and over again uh and then they would turn to the next page and it would have another word there like dog and then the booklet would ask you to think of the first word that came to your mind that wasn't dog or chair um so for example if it was like chair 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 turn the page dog they would respond with a common word that's associated with dog like like puppy but if it was chair 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 stool they would respond with a, a an uncommon word like uh like table right chair or table are common I know that you're just giving an example but but yeah maybe a better example would be like chair 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 stool feet or something like that right so what's interesting is they have these booklets that measure common word associations and some are more common and some are less common so they can actually quantitatively say this is an uncommon word this is a common word which is interesting so so the idea of this is that you're so semantically satiated by thinking about chairs that you struggle to come up with a common association with stool which is similar right because you're just like your brain is your test your mental test tube is full um now can you guess the fatal flaw with this study? This one's a bit tough to catch. Um, really racist. It... <laughs> Is it just too subjective? I think it does an, an interesting job in terms of it has like a quantitative measure yeah. of, mm-hmm. of that. And also what's interesting is that because you have to think of it so quickly, it's a little harder to sort of like fake that, right? Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. The specific fatal flaw with this one you might have noticed is that they did not have a proper control condition oh, oh interesting what is a control condition for this what would be a control what would so be a, a control, control condition yeah. well 
So there's a pretty savage uh, reproduction of this that adds one. So you might have assumed that they did it just out of good faith. Oh, yeah, because that's how you do science. That's how <laughs> science works. Duh. In 1969, a few years later, um, Esposito and Pelton do a really damning version of this experiment um, that has a proper control. So they make the same booklet, um, huh. but this time they include a control condition uh, uh, where instead of writing chair, 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 turn the page stool, write the first word you think of in the control condition. Uh, on the first page, you just write chair one time, turn the page, stool, write the first word that comes to think of, and they got oh. bas- basically the same oh. results. I was literally, is chair and stool the word they used in the, the study? Yeah. I was, okay, that's so, I was thinking as you were saying it, I can't think of a good association for chair and stool. Exactly. Yeah. And I've not been saying it over and over again. Yeah. yeah. Your your head's exactly in the same spot, which is like, the issue isn't semantic satiation. It's the fact that it's hard to think of another word related to two words, right? If, yeah. if I go chair, dog, think of a word with dog, you're like, okay, fine. But if I do chair, stool, think of a word, you're like, well, I can't say chair because you just said chair. Yeah. Right? Like, it, it it's 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 a difficult problem without it and they neglected to um check for that which is important that's just dumb like that i uh, the, uh, with the 60s one fine like i could be like you know we need that it's a start right this one is controls in experiments were a thing you know what year was this yeah. this is 1963 the recreation happened in 69 but um i feel like a control is something they'd figured out by the 60s surely these these two people who recreated it esposito and pelton would go on to make um what sheila black would describe as quote a scathing review of semantic satiation and rightfully concluded that there was not much evidence of its of its existence the general consensus in the early 1970s was that if anything satiation occurred at a perceptual level so what that means is that instead of happening at the semantic level at the level of meaning they're like maybe it's just an illusion of hearing right or something Mm. lower level than that interesting Um, we're not really losing meaning like we think we are maybe we're just tricked by that and so this falls out of favor for a while but as, as 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 much as folks were were railing against this um this is where we get to the turn in our parable um this is the hope at the bottom of the well which is that we, we have to be careful we don't make the fourth pitfall of psychology, the pitfall that was within us all along. And that <laughs> is believing that failing to prove something is the same as disproving something, right? Just because an experiment failed does not mean that the phenomena doesn't exist. Um, and even though Esposito and Pelton were, were pretty dismissive, um, other people did disagree constructively. So uh, Schultz, who was the experimenter who um, showed that participants were faking the results um he was the one that showed that santa wasn't real um (laughs) years later he wrote a paper that was that was really critical it's the one with the two question marks at the end but in the last paragraph he went however it should be pointed out that the present results as well as those obtained previously do not necessarily imply that there's no such phenomena as semantic satiation instead the implication is that this rating technique uh you know the polarity thing may not be a satisfactory method for assessing the effects I'm confu- I am actually confused by this because the semantic yeah. satiation of like the term that you know, but that is a, that is a phenomenon like that I that and they know it too because they would have experienced it. Is it that he's that he's saying that the um 
the mechanism by which yeah he he almost wants to rename it because there there some people think that it's not semantic oh, because of the implication oh okay oh i see exactly the mechanism of that yeah. feeling right okay i understand exactly 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 so finally there comes along a study that seems to do a good job of avoid avoiding all of these pitfalls so far and what's funny is that it's not like a brilliantly flashy idea it's not like a silver bullet like this is the part that would make it if this was a parable would make it a boring parable because it's just a good science <laughs> story uh, it's just it's just a carefully designed experiment um, which is beautiful in its own right so in 1984 smith comes up with an idea for testing this called a category verification task again not very glamorous uh i don't know if i could come up with three less flashy words than category verification task but it's a great design so they have participants repeat a word either 30 or three times in the control. So let's say the word is fruit. So Ella would say the f- word fruit three times and Caroline would say the word fruit 30 times. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they would show you a new word like apple and they would ask you to decide if it belonged to the fruit category. In the control, uh, Ella's condition where you said fruit three times. So you say fruit, fruit, fruit. I'd show you apple. You would be able to respond pretty quickly and be like, yeah, that's that's a fruit. Um, but in Caroline's case, repeating the word 30 times and getting semantically satiated, you would respond slower. Oh. It does. I know you said it's yeah. boring, but it's not. It's nice. You know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's nice. It's sim- simplicity. If you can do something very exactly. simply in science, it's, it's the best way to that's do it. That's a bonus. Yeah. Yeah. And what's really cool is instead of, asking you to explain how you feel they just measured your response time yeah. like how quickly yeah. you could tell by pressing a button on a keyboard i'm so glad you guys like it because i really liked it <laughs> I like downplay it to be like, it's not that cool but i'm glad you guys like it but another really cool thing that they also tested is that if the word is unrelated if you said fruit 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 fruit, fruit airplane both of you would have the same reaction time which shows that it's it's not the effect of repeating a word that does this right it's not the fact that caroline has to repeat it 30 times it's the fact that it's a a repeated word that you have to reason with there's one more variation that's like sort of the the final nail in the coffin instead of asking you to do a semantic task they ask you to do a lexical task so ella they ask you to say fruit three times and then caroline they ask you to say fruit 30 times Mm -hmm. and then instead of asking you to say is apple a part of the category they just say they ask you to say, is Apple a real word? Like, is it a valid English word? Huh, okay. And in that case, there is no difference. Caroline only has a slower response time when they have to semantically satiate, repeat a lot of times, and they have to reason with the meaning of the word specifically. Yeah. Like, they have to think about the category of oh, fruit I see. and so Apple not, as yeah, opposed right. to just, is Apple a word? So, so that kind of shows that it's not the repetition. It's the repetition combined with reasoning with meaning. So looking back at our pitfalls, the first was weak data. This experiment uses reaction time, which is beautifully quantitative. Um, you know, it's measured in like milliseconds. Amazing. The second pitfall was the observer effect. And the great thing about reaction time is it's when it's measured on milliseconds, it's kind of hard to, to fake that, which is great. And then the third was bad control groups, and this experiment has this down pat. This is, to to Ella's point, really where uh, it starts to look like a modern paper. Like, the procedure section for this paper Uh. is just like, 
Um, they account for everything, including randomizing which hand you press the button on the keyboard oh, with. Wow, they really like, did think really... of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 a great huh. it's a great paper. Um, and importantly, not only do we have this one experiment showing this, we have multiple variations of this experiment showing similar results. I love um, that. There's also some EEG work studying brain activity uh, that seems to agree with these studies. Um, and this this model of semantic satiation fits our understanding of how neurons fire and wire and get tired. In her review of this, <laughs> Sheila Black called this section converging evidence of semantic satiation. And when I got to that, I was like, finally <laughs> like it's like it's like knowing ahead of time when two characters in a show are going to get together and you're just like come on come on we know this is gonna happen please <laughs> but of course this is the, the like spooky epilogue of the parable is that another pitfall that we have to avoid is to remember that of course just because studies are recent doesn't necessarily mean that they're right like i'm sure this is how people felt in the 60s too and as we get into finer details of this there's still a lot of it being figured out um sheila black published an experiment on semantic satiation that was only released online last month which is wild however what we can say is that for the first time in these like 80 years of papers we have a replicable well-designed study that seems to suggest (laughs) That when kids repeat words and they sound funny, um, it is the meaning of the word that is actually getting habituated and like worn out. You can tune out the meaning of a word, which, as we've shown throughout this whole thing, opens the door to to so many questions. Like, does this happen with long words? Can it happen with other complex thoughts? Does this happen more with with babies? Does this happen when you're learning a new language? How does it affect Mm. bilingual people? Like, all these questions spring forth and I, I think that's what's really beautiful and perilous about these kinds of psychology experiments like on the one hand it's amazing that this like silly feeling in our brain can spark so many interesting and like totally doable experiments like all of these yeah. experiments we've mentioned are just clever design and like maybe a computer and that i, I think that's amazing uh but now we know from from our parable and our pitfalls that the the experiments that we're most eager for are the ones that we sometimes have to be the most careful of. Yeah. And that's that's the real message. Aww. Tom Tom giving us that uh after school special message, of course. <laughs> I was thinking of it as like a bedtime story. It's like, and now dream dream of good experiments. Good night, good children. Night. <laughs> <laughs> we don't talk about things like experimental design that much on the show yeah, and and, yeah. and maybe we should more because it's i think we do sometimes like get into papers and stuff but like and how people did it but actually getting across like how important it is <laughs> to yeah definitely <laughs> yeah. but also i i want to say that the, to your point that just because something's modern doesn't mean it's uh correct obviously that's true you have to you, everything has to be looked at carefully but <laughs> the difference yes. with modern uh, experience particularly with psychology is that they are built on the backs yeah. of like you know decades worth of totally, mistakes totally, yeah totally. <laughs> which is what you were just showing right yeah that is a good point yeah there is progress and we can't and we can't uh, uh dismiss that i just is there any real like need to understand it or is it just one of those things that we're like, we just want to know? No, yeah, like... I think I think you know half of this is fueled by the fact that it is something that we all like. That we all just I experience. Like it's fueled by yeah. the fact that it's yeah. just cool, you know. But I think also, I mean, 
maybe this experiment, maybe Smith's experiment isn't some groundbreaking thing, but all these questions that we've raised are very yeah. interesting. Like, does this yeah. happen with other languages? Mm -hmm. Does Once you have this, like, tool that can look into meaning, right, like, like semantics and also something that can look into this, like, forgetfulness is also a, a, an important thing in terms of, like, oh, studying. Yeah, How totally. do you learn, mm -hmm. right? Language acquisition. And so... I think uh, uh, we've mostly looked at how this is related to that um, weird childhood phenomena, but I think yeah. it, it can be a stepping stone to some uh, practical, yeah. Even in biology, that is how learning, like just being interested in something and learning something very basic will ultimately yeah. lead yeah. to um, applications down the road. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, it, it, everything has to start somewhere, you know? Um, yeah. So with, like with aphantasia, or prosopagnosia, any uh, you know, uh, the step up to that is learning about brain structures, and and then the step after that is treating people with um, disorders that are related somehow. You know, it's it all kind yeah. of moves yeah. onwards. So I don't think there's anything wrong with Aww. just doing something that's interesting. Uh, no, I think it's no, a great question. Yeah, just like that's so that's such a huge part of being a human. I think is just like being curious about something and then being like, I'm going to figure it out. And it's funny yeah. you say that because the next part. <laughs> That actually linked in really well oh, no. to my miscellaneous it's, topic. It's a real oh, shame no. we throw music in between them. <laughs> <laughs> Today's miscellaneous topic is the art of speedrunning video games. The true art. Now, what is speedrunning? Trying to do the game from start to finish as quickly as possible. Yes, fine. Uh, it's, yeah, a complete... <laughs> the complete game or just part of a game as quickly as possible that's it yeah and there but there are lots of caveats to this but we will get there eventually weirdly enough i like watching meta analyses of speedruns rather than the speedruns themselves summoning assault is great um but caroline i don't know what is your familiarity with with speedruns so my familiarity with speedruns is very very limited um i was aware that they were a thing it was never a part of the internet or gaming that I've ever particularly cared about. However, mm -hmm. I have watched one game theory video on that one guy speedrunning Minecraft, which was heavily contested because he somehow randomly yeah. got enough spawns to do it super quickly when he shouldn't have, and they thought he was cheating, um, and there was a huge drama about it. So I know a little bit about that, but apart from that, I know nothing else about it. There is things like trying to complete like games of like chess and things like that super super quickly. Also, potentially a form of like speedrunning. There's, I will, I will push against that. I feel like there is really something endemic of speedrunning that feels very um, unique to the video game medium. Of Are you saying there's yes. like a speedrunning culture or something? There That's... is a speedrunning culture. Oh my there God. literally isn't. And I'm going to talk about it. Yeah! Speedrunning basically goes back to, like, the inception of video games, you know, in, which is, like, the 70s, 80s. Um, because as long mm -hmm. as there have been video games, people have been trying to complete them as fast as possible. <laughs> it, it's yeah. just, it seems... For bragging rights. Yeah, it seems to be a human nature kind of thing to want to do that. In the 1980s, the video game developer Activision began publishing their newsletter, Activisions, and people would submit photographs of the time on their screen... <gasps> Which would be, oh. yeah, which would be published in the newsletter. Um, and I, I was looking at this newsletter from 1981, and their first newsletter 
their instructions how to take no. pictures of the TV screen. <gasps> That's I would not never have guessed it was that early that yeah. this was happening. Yeah. That's really cool. What I can tell is they had clubs that if you achieved certain times, you would get you'd be allowed to get into like oh. this like members oh. club kind of thing for that specific game. Um, but I wanted to read the instructions for the taking a picture of the TV screen because oh, it's I'm such a so, like a different so world. <gasps> oh, I'm so excited! I'm so excited. <laughs> Do not use a flash bulb. In most cases, Aww. the light from the screen is enough. When in doubt, turn on all the lights in the room. <laughs> <laughs> when in doubt, and then just wait for these. But then this instruction, which it, it goes from like being that really simple thing, and then it goes for a thirty-five millimeter camera. There are two methods we have used. If you find another, let us know. Ooh. Use film with Ooh. an ASA oh reading of sixty-four, God. set lens to f twenty-two, no. and expose film for three to five seconds. They did uh, not do this. For film to with an ASA no. of one hundred, shoot at a one thirtieth <gasps> of a second using a wide set lens opening. Uh, it just goes oh, on well, like no, this. You have to consider well. Well, first of all, it's camera technology, but also like CRT technology. Like, yeah, some of these things had like certain frame rates, and you could probably, if you probably didn't have the exposure right for oh, long enough, course. you might miss it. I didn't think of it like that, but the fact that wow. these instructions are so like detailed. Yeah. At this and then, and then that's it's so like, interesting. Don't use a flash, idiot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah, it just won't show up. <laughs> that's so funny. But also in this issue of uh, Activision's Chuck Sr. and Chuck Jr. of Enon, Ohio join <laughs> the world-class Dragster Club. So this club is made up of members who co- completed the Atari racing game Dragster in less than six seconds. Chuck Sr. and Jr. raced against each other and achieved a joint time of 5.61 seconds. Um, Dragster was like one of the first like speedrun games, if you want to call it yeah. that. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't, it's not quite what I would consider speedrunning, but because it's a racing game. But in 1982, mm-hmm. a man called Todd Rogers claimed to have the world record of Dragster at 5.51 seconds. This record and others led Rogers to becoming the world's first professional gamer, paid gamer. <gasps> wow. Um, in 2012, he rece- even received a Guinness World Record for the longest standing video game record for Dragster. Aww. But wow. That's so cool. Oh, no. In 2007, <clears throat> speedrunner no. and computer scientist Eric Omnigamer Koziel <gasps> looked at the code of Dragster and determined no. that the fastest achievable time was 5.7 seconds, making Todd Rogers' claim of 5.51 impossible. Todd Rogers was a cheater. So as long oh, as there has been speedrunning, there has been cheating in speedrunning. From, the, <laughs> from the literal get-go, from the time when we were taking analog cameras to our CRTs, there has been this. Wow! I want to know how he cheated, but I just don't. Yeah. I remember, I mean, you know, I was a, a, a kid in the early aughts, late 90s, and even then, before the internet was, like, super, super big, like, the the video game lies, you could tell, are just so easy because there's it's hard to document things. So it's just yeah. like, yeah, of course I have I have Super Smash Bros. And and actually on my version, because uh, my cousin, uncle works at Nintendo, I actually have <laughs> like a thousand characters in it. So, um, but yeah, <laughs> it, it's just hard to document things at that time. Yeah. yeah. Dragster, this game Dragster, Metroid 2, Return of Samus and Super Mario Kart were very popular games to speedrun at the time. Um, mm. And they shared what the reason is that they shared one thing in common. Can you think what that might be? Do they all have a clock, a timer? Exactly. Oh. They all include oh. in game timers. Speedrunning was restricted to these kind of games because yeah. you have to take oh, wow. a picture yeah. of your screen. Wow. <laughs> wow, yeah. 
this is still like very limited. I would say the proper subculture of speedrunning really begins in the 90s because the internet yeah. becomes widely available. So the 1993 game Doom and its successor series Quake are credited with the real like birth and growth of the speedrunning community. It's because players could effectively record their gameplay with files called demos. Oh. First of all, they're small, so you can upload to the internet. And then someone mm, mm, could mm. download it and play it back on their own console. So it's not like a video. It was a... Uh, yes. It's like a replay of the, the like, data points. Yeah, exactly. Which means... Because yeah. a video would be, like, that in the, in the 90s. Yeah, like, impossible yeah. to get on the internet. So mm-hmm. people would post the, their attempts speedrunning Doom with these demo That's files cool. on message boards. I, I just love the, the beauty of, like... There's something something poetic about like it's not you're watching it, it's you're downloading the playthrough and running it on your own to yeah, like I see really it. Like, yeah. cool. I think that's cute. So as this speedrunning community starts to grow, you also start seeing limitations being added to speedruns to make challenges that go beyond just completing the game fast. Oh. So for example, in Doom, a game yeah. where you kill monsters, people would try and complete the game as fast as possible without <laughs> killing any monsters. <laughs> <laughs> which is uh one probably one of my favorite speedrunning kind of categories like people will speedrun pokemon without like killing like taking any damage or or <laughs> killing any other pokemon or you know within reason it's very funny yeah. i've heard i've heard the phrase like pacifist run for that yeah, yeah. Pacifist yeah. Run, exactly okay um i mean the categories will depend on the game but the biggest categories in speedrunning now in any game tend to be any percent a hundred percent and low percent which mm-hmm. i'm gonna get into after the history lesson because i want to give okay. give you nice examples of them and um, tom you might also have some these demos in doom they're only recordings of single levels but ah. a group of speedrunners mm. decided to stitch together all <gasps> of their best times of demo levels for the game quake to make a collaborative run known as quake done quick um in which what? the game is completed in 19 minutes and 49 seconds on nightmare difficulty wow I just like that. That's great. Just yeah. Quick done quick. It's the, the like the humbleness of it. It's like, yeah, we just did a quick. And, and I'm quick sure people watching it's that. like, whoa. Yeah. And the fastest, actually, I think speed run of Quake now is 12 minutes. Um, and it's called Quake. And that file is called Quake Done Quickest. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. <laughs> so in 1998, these Quake speedrunners and a few others create a website called uh, Speed Demos Archive which is still active to this day. And it, it was primarily oh. for Quake speedruns at the time, but then it eventually kind of exploded with submissions from hundreds of other games. Yeah. And because it was like so many people were submitting, members of the community are starting start to get recruited to verify submission runs. Oh, wow. And, and then you start getting, for different games, you get rules and guidelines put into place that are agreed on by the community as a whole for individual mm. games to kind of standardize mm. runs so that, you know, it will be fair. Yeah. Especially, so I'm. I, I know for like um, when games don't have like an implicit time where you have to recognize like when does it start. I know sometimes yes, like exactly. it'll be like as soon as you finish the last boss, as soon as like a certain screen, and those become like standardized within the community. They they just like agree. Yeah. So as the nineties and noughties go on, one of the big things that happens is video capture becomes uh, easier and yeah more accessible and just games yeah. become more accessible as well um so the, the speedrunning community starts to grow um and with all this working collaborative working collaboratively with speedrunning starts to grow as well people would share like new glitches and routes and tips with each other on message boards and then individuals would get, take those things away and practice for hours and hours and hours <gasps> just to make incremental steps towards shaving minutes or yeah. seconds off of a game wow 
um, which is crazy. But the next huge advancement of speed running comes with the dawn of live streaming, of course. Mm-hmm. So this is a quote from the video The History of Speedrunning by Did You Know Gaming on YouTube. As live streaming took off in the late 2000s and 2010s, speedrunning rapidly transformed from a solitary hobby where runners spent weeks alone perfecting runs to a spectator sport, which is very true. So because yeah. it's around this yeah. time that speedrunning marathons start to be hosted in which speedrunners demonstrate their abilities live to audiences, both in person and via li- over live streaming. So in 2010, the Speed Demos Archive that I talked about before launches a semi-annual charity marathon called Games Done Quick. Yeah! Sorry, I was waiting for this. But anyway, just so you know, that that first name of that Quake Done Quick, those are the people that make made games done quick which is Aww. a cute holdover wait re- yeah i was so i was lovely. like when i heard when i heard done quick i was like it can't be it must be a coincidence yeah. that quake is called quake We're done quick oh, i'm so them. happy yeah. that that's yes and speed speedrun is just broadcasting live on twitch it just makes the community much more accessible to casual um players yeah. and viewers so yeah. you don't have to be someone who actually puts hours in anymore you can just enjoy it um peripherally you know, you can just enjoy other people doing it. You don't have to comb through the forums to find a file to play on your local version. Yeah, exactly. Can, so I, yeah. I mean, the the thing that got me into like uh, into speed running, which I don't actually do myself, is watching Twitch streams of Breath of the Wild. So yeah, I did try and do some speed running myself, and I was so bad at it because <gasps> I can't do any of the inputs at all because it's te- the technical skill required. To do the glitches yeah. in some of these runs is insane. So it, I'm never going to be a speedrunner, but I love watching people do it. Um, but back to Games Done Quick. Games Done Quick is an, a charity event. So oh. this is a quote from the Games Done Quick Wikipedia. Viewers are encouraged to donate for incentives during the stream, such as selecting the file name or main character's name in a run, um, having yeah. the runners attempt more difficult challenges, and entering raffles for the chance of winning prizes. Um, so the first marathon. It ran in 2010, raised just over $10,000 for charity. The second, in 2011, raised $52,000. And the most recent, in January 2022, raised $3,444,000. Say that number one more time. $3,444,000. Over $37.8 million have been raised across 35 marathons, which is pretty cool. They really speed ran charity. Yeah. <laughs> oh my um, god. Can I just say it's I I hadn't put I've never put these two thoughts together, but like it's so amazing that like speed running, which really starts off and almost feels sort of like a solitary activity yeah. where you just like do it over and over again, somehow meshes perfectly with this like communal performative aspect. Like they're so clever, like the way they come up with things where it's like yeah, if you donate, you get to like name the character or like decide which route we take or stuff like that. Is so insanely clever yeah, and absolutely. it's amazing that and that still it, happens. It meshes so well. And you know that that's happening on Twitch streams as well. If you donate to like the streamer, yeah, they're like yeah. name parts of their their seg- the segments in the in the speed run. They're like name it stuff that you want it want it to be named Aww. and that kind of thing. It's um like the community aspect of speed running is the thing I really love about it. Yeah. But um, that's, that's so cool. And and I mean that's the end of the history part because by the twenty twenties it's you know speedrunning is bigger than ever, and and most people are watching it over uh, on Twitch or on YouTube, right? But um, many people still don't really get the point of it, um, which I understand. It's not for everyone, but to help those people, I want to quote blogger Jason 
uh, Kotke talking about a Super Mario Bros. speedrun. So if you forget the video game part of it and all the negative connotations you might have about that, you get to see the collective effort of thousands of people over more than three decades yeah. who have studied a thing right down to the bare metal so yeah. that one person standing on the shoulder of giants <laughs> in a near-perfect performance can do something no one has ever done before. Progress and understanding... Wow. Right, I know. Progress and understanding by groups of people happens exactly like this in manufacturing, art, science, engineering, design, social science, literature, and every other collective human endeavour. It's what humans do. Wow. That's so lovely. That is wow. so lovely. Yeah, I was already sold, but now I'm like, I, it's, that's, wow. Yeah, when I read that quote, I was like, I didn't re- I think I didn't hadn't been able to verbalize exactly why I liked speedrunning. Yeah. Reading yeah. that, I was like, yeah, that like it really is this, and it's the same for science. You know, mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's why yeah. I like sci- like I love that I'm taking the research of people before me and and growing on it. I yeah. like yeah. it's yeah. it really feels like something collaborative and meaningful, and it doesn't matter yeah. that that yeah. the end point of speedrunning is just doing a video game fast. It's the the, the process of getting there absolutely wow so i mentioned that the most popular categories in speedrunning in any game tend to be any percent 100 percent, and mm-hmm. low percent and i'm going to explain those two well caroline oh, in particular okay so uh, you could probably guess them but in any percent the player just has to reach the end of the game in the fastest way possible with no limitations yes yeah. So they don't need to collect items or achieve goals or even access the whole game. For example, Super Mario Odyssey, which took me 15 hours to finish, has an any percent world record of 57 minutes and 14 seconds. Um, and that was wow. posted just four weeks ago because... Oh, wow. Oh. People just always drilling games like this and runs are always evolving. Yeah. Um, and But Super Mario Odyssey is actually a pretty slow any percent. Um, the Guinness World Record for the most speedrun game of all time is Super Mario 64. That's what uh-huh. I was going to yeah. With over 14,000 runs logged on speedrun.com as of March 2020. Now, the only percent mm-hmm. world record of Super Mario 64, uh, which is called Zero Stars, um, is 6 minutes and 27 seconds. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Somebody do the math of how many times they could beat Super mario in the time of this podcast yeah. <laughs> in the time of this section, please, even. please let us know um, what what the any percents are so cool is because with games like super mario typically when i think about the fastest way to beat it it's like okay you have to get there's like a, a star limit that you have to get to get to the end yeah. it's like so in my mind it's like oh it's the quickest way to get like 50 stars right but no um, yeah exactly no. right no it's yeah ze- this is a zero star and even the 120 star is an hour long, which is wow. wild. Yeah. Oh, wow. So in 100%, the player must complete 100% of the game as fast as possible. So what that means is depends on the game, but it will often yeah. include things like completing all of the side quests and collecting mm. all of like the collectible items yeah. um, and yeah. stuff like that. So I wanted, to t- I wanted to tell you guys how long the 100% world record of Skyrim is, but there isn't one. <gasps> no! Oh my okay. goodness. Oh god. Because right, oh, the community terrifying. very rightly will won't make guidelines for something like that because it's too unreasonably yeah. long. I that's great. I, I respect them for that. That's that's good. Yeah. I guess I thought I think maybe negatively towards the speedrun community that I was like, if there is a record to be had, someone will try and get it just for the sake of it. But actually it seems that yeah. there's like limitations. They're like, no, we're not gonna yeah. do something that's, that's not so fun. That's so cool. Yeah, you know? that's wow, that's, yeah. I love that. 
that's really cool. That's really cool. Yeah, which made me like feel even like fonder about all of this. Yeah. For an example of a hundred percent, three years ago, the hundred percent speed run of Breath of the Wild, which for those of you who play includes finding all nine hundred Korok seeds, <gasps> was sixty-eight hours and forty-nine minutes. Um, that's about how long I took to finish the game overall over many 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 days and weeks yeah and i was nowhere near 100 percent completion yeah so the current world record holder as of two weeks ago oh was 16 hours and 36 minutes oh that cut it down a lot didn't yeah. it? <laughs> so low percent is the opposite of 100 percent. you have to reach the end of the game whilst completing the least amount of things as possible <laughs> that's amazing and of course what those things are will depend on the game it might be picking items up it might be yeah. doing quests that kind of thing so often any percent and low percent end up overlapping because a game doesn't actually require you to do much um to yeah. finish it where low percent is its own category things start to get very interesting um, because someone could complete a game in two hours having done five things in the game. But if someone comes yeah. along and completes the game in 25 hours having only done four things, they would still be the leader. <sighs> oh, oh, that is cool. It's like, a, it's like a turtle in the hair situation, like literally. Yeah. Yes. Low percent gets into like the real technical parts of the game. Like how can I skip this necessary part of a game? basically yeah it's why many games don't even do low percent because it would be like a ridiculous endeavor my favorite example of the absurdity of low percent is in uh legend of zelda twilight princess so the 100 percent for this game is 6033 minutes uh but the low percent is two, 24 hours and 59 minutes <gasps> <world record>. that's <laughs> Um, although, uh, sorry, that used to be the world record. I think the world record is a bit lower now. And this is because, I love this, it's because it uses a glitch which allows Link to clip through things. Um, for those who don't know, that means moving through an object that you shouldn't be able to in a game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this clip technique is incredibly, incredibly slow. So at oh, one point no. in the game, the players can use the glitch to clip through a locked gate so you don't have to pick up a key. But it takes... Yeah. Link, 13 <laughs> hours to move through the gate. <laughs> 13 hours. Yeah. There's, uh, there's a, That's so funny. I know, it's wild. There's a link in the show notes to a video called The Speedrun Where Link Stares at Rupees for 17 Hours, um, which <laughs> explains the mechanics of this glitch really well. It's really fun. Um, I definitely recommend it. I should say, unlike in... Twilight uh, Princess glitches are normally used to speed runs up, right? Yeah. <laughs> Unless they're not allowed, yeah. in which case it's called a glitchless run. Okay, yeah. And this act does make a huge difference most of the time. In Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, the normal any percent world record is 4 minutes 49 seconds and 150 mm-hmm. milliseconds. And the milliseconds are important oh, wow. here because the top six times yeah. are all 4 minutes and 49 seconds. Oh my goodness. The glitchless any percent is 3 hours and 38 minutes. Whoa. So you can wow. see what a different glitches make. And I yeah. I appreciate like the dedication and skill people put into glitchless runs. But like I said, glitchless are my favourite part of speedrunning. I think it makes yeah. it more fun. It also seems like the most collaborative aspect of speedrunning because everyone Uh is like sharing and testing the glitches and discovering and executing these glitches does take a lot of skill and time because you often have to do like frame imperfect inputs to achieve some of them 
so like one of my favorite glitches in breath of the wild which the, these are the ones i know the best because i've watched most videos about it it's called a whim bomb so you can like summon bombs <laughs> what a great name in in breath of the wild and then you throw them and then explode like detonate them remotely mm-hmm. but in this in very quick succession okay you stand on a little ledge and then you kind of jump and drop two different shapes of bombs in quick succession understanding that it will send you in a specific direction because the bomb always um lands with one of the four cord like they have like direction things wow. that they know about this and then you detonate one of the bo- the back bomb so it hits <laughs> so the f- front bomb is propelled forward into link and throws him into the air at high speed so he's thrown what forward the fuck? <laughs> what? real math and what? physics how do people even find these things even though this game is like four years old, the last kind of six months, people found this other new glitch where you can, Link can like hold onto an object. And then if you just press a couple of inputs really fast, he just moves back and forth like this, floating through the air. He <laughs> <laughs> just shimmies fast enough to break the code. Basically just shimmies through the air. It's wonderful. I can't remember what that one's called though. I was going to say, I, I definitely, I obviously love a lot of the, um, computer engineering aspects of this and the programming aspects of this. So some of my favorites are, uh, there's a really fun video where the the developers behind uh, Psychonauts watch a speedrunner break their game. Yes. And and then they're just they they're just like laughing because they're like they're like you made that bug that's your fault I remember you worked on this level and uh, I think I think it's also it's interesting because it's it's there's a joy in the mistakes you made and I think that's mm. really beautiful. Um, the other th- aspect of speedrunning that I think is really interesting is are you familiar with tool assisted speedruns yes. or task runs? I- I am, and I was going to include that, but I didn't want the history section of this to get too long. <laughs> All I'll say is, it, basically what they are is they're, they're speedruns that are done by a computer. And so oh. they can do, like, they can do, like, inputs that are unhumanly possible. Uh, and I'll, I'll, uh, if I if you would be so kind, I'd love to throw this in the show notes. One of my favorite videos of speedrunning is a tool-assisted speedrun of this game called Brain Age which is a math game. And you would think to yourself, that sounds boring. It's a computer uh-huh, doing math, but uh-huh. they do really silly stuff. They make it extremely <laughs> entertaining in spite of that. Um, but yeah. I actually want to just end by saying, you mentioned the game developers which watch speedruns of their own games and a lot of them take it really mm. well. But a lot of game developers don't like speedrunning. Um, really? This is less the case now than it was maybe 20 years ago, but there are still some that uh-huh. don't. Uh, and they basically believe that's like disrespectful to the game, to the people who like created the right. game, and um, because you you skip the story or and you abuse the glitches that and ruin the game is their idea. And I think that these okay. people have a fundamental misunderstanding of speedrunning. Yeah, Super Mario Bros. Three was released in America in nineteen ninety. Uh, for a long time, the any percent world record for this game was stuck at around eleven minutes. Mm-hmm. But in twenty twenty. 30 years after the game's release, speedrunner wow. Zikubi released a time of just three minutes and two seconds. And they did this by finding a new kind of wormhole glitch Ooh. that skipped most of the game. So 30 uh-huh. years after the release of this game, this person is still playing the game, still enjoying it, 
probably meticulously wow. testing yeah. it for glitches. Yeah. Had probably put thousands and thousands of hour, hours into it. Knew that game better than the yeah. developers Literally at that point. inside yeah. out at that point. Yeah. That doesn't sound like someone who doesn't respect a game to me. That sounds like someone who loves it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just because, like, like, even if you're thinking about, like, less extreme examples, like, these people spend so much time perfecting what they're doing and creating this community around these games which possibly wouldn't be there without the speedrunning yeah, exactly. side of it yeah 100% like, I would yeah. much prefer for that to exist and for some game developers to be a bit salty about it than for yeah. that to not be there yeah, yeah I'll say yeah. For, for me like Breath of the Wild I love playing Breath of the Wild but I you know I've done most of the things in the world now and yeah, I just wanted it's it's kind of like this like fan fiction, you know. You liked it so much, you wanted more. Yeah, and speedrunning yeah, yeah. is a, was a way for me to like get wow. more of this game that I liked mm-hmm. in like and new things out of it still. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly it. Wow, it essentially makes a game so much more than what it was initially meant to be, and yeah. that's really lovely. That means that like the game is actually going to get because you could so easily just play a game and then never look at it again. Whereas yeah. this is like a, oh yeah, no, you can actually like enjoy this game after the fact as well. And that's really, really nice. Oh, I like it. You've, you've won me over. Oh! I think I have to go and watch some of the ones that you guys have talked about now. It's Review Corner! Oh, it is Review Corner, yes! So this review comes to us from Jaybert. And they go, love, let's learn everything. Each of the three hosts brings something special to the show. Tom, Ella, and Caroline are a joy, and each bring a fascinating topic to dig into each episode. P.S. Discovered the pod on Instagram three days ago, and am now all caught up. Oh, my goodness. Wow. That's a binge. That's a serious binge, Jay. That is one hell of a binge. And that's a serious 100% speedrun, so let us know in the the Discord if you have beat that (laughs) speedrun. Amazing time. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Jay Butt. That's that's really kind. And if anybody wants to beat Jay Butt's score, let us know. (laughs) Take your time also. (laughs) No. Three days off less. What I wonder what this what's the zero percent speed rate? I think I think that just like mashing fast forward. Eight billion people in the world are already doing the zero percent speed run. Yeah. Yeah. So do we have any plugs or shout-outs? I'd love to give a great shout-out real quick to... Myself. I'm <laughs> one person everywhere. <laughs> I'd like to... Yeah, I'd like to give a great little shout-out to myself, too. Uh, Big Science Energy on TikTok and now YouTube also. Ooh. Oh, yes. Try to get that silver play button like Tom. Let's go. <laughs> Speedrun it. Speedrun. Yeah, I'm, spe- I'm trying to speedrun YouTube, guys. Help me. <laughs> Ella Hubbard on Twitter. And none of your business anywhere else. I'm going to start out by uh, shouting us out. If you're not part of our Discord server, head over to letslearneverythingpod.com and you'll be able to find a link for it there. And if you'd like to support us a little bit more, head over to that same link and you can find our Patreon as well. Yeah, shout out to um, the Patreons. Yeah, well, by the time this has been released, we will have just released our um, ETC episode where we take uh, science tests from different countries. So if you're interested in listening to that, head we over there. We don't do great. <laughs> no, we, we really don't do, don't do well. 
No. <laughs> um, I'm also going to shout myself out. I'm Caroline the Bug pretty much everywhere. Thanks. Amazing. Amazing. So, this episode, we have learnt that honeybees aren't that bad, but native bees are definitely better. We have learnt that if you say the words somatic satiation too many times, it will lose all of its meaning. <laughs> Go ahead, try it now. Uh, and we learnt that speedrunning is a wonderful community of people and it does not deserve some of the shit it gets on the internet. Yay! Join us next time where we'll learn about everything. Let's Learn Everything is independently produced by Caroline Roper, Tom Lung and Ella Hubber. Editing by Tom Lung and Ella Hubber. And music by the wonderful and talented Tom Lung. That was a great sum up, Caroline. I, Thank I, you. I'm always nervous around that. And I was like, I was, oh, you nailed it. I was shitting myself, honestly. <laughs>